Creation Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Shabbat Shalom, everybody. And of course, we're we're still tracing the footsteps of Messiah, right? And this idea of the footsteps, it's going back to our weekly study in the Song of Songs. We're going to be working with a particular verse out of the Song of Songs to kind of uh, keep us centered on the resurrection, to keep us centered on what the footsteps of Messiah, how we might experience those footsteps. What are the things that would be guideposts that would let us know the times of the footsteps of Messiah? And of course, we know we have everything from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of Malachi as prophecy. And then we have the prophecies that are contained in the New Testament or the Bicharashah that are also going to leave lots of clues and even clarity about prophecies that we've already had. So I want to go back this week and review Gideon's battle. We went over it last week. It, there's so many symbols in this story about Gideon. And if you match it up with the judge that preceded him, Deborah, and you put these two together, you really have a a huge, I don't know if you say cinematic picture of end times. They're dropping all sorts of clues here. But one of the clues that Gideon dropped was when he told the elders of Sukkot, particular city, he had, remember he had requested bread and water for the sake of his men because they were so weary from chasing the enemy that they were just growing faint. I mean, they had, I don't know what it would be like to be winning by so much that you wore yourself out winning. But that's exactly what happened here. So he promises these elders, he says, okay, don't help us. But you know what? When I come back, I'm going to deal with you. And he does. When he goes back, he takes thorns and briars to them. The, the passage says, I will know you with thorns and briars. And that's an odd way of using knowing, right? In Hebrew, it's yada, yodea. We want to look at that because if Yeshua is telling people who have done great things in his name, I never knew you, then we have to go back to these prophecies and say, well, what exactly is knowing? I want to be known. I want to know him and I want to be known when it's time for him to open the gates into the kingdom. The, the first clue, though, that we have with Gidon is that his story is centered around the time of Pesach or Passover. And we get the little clues about Passover. Of course, he bakes matzah. He, as he creeps up on the enemy and he hears the enemy's dream of the round loaf of barley rolling into the, the Midianite tent and upending the tent, barley, of course, is associated with the week of Pesach. The first fruits of the barley are offered during that week. And so we've got two very distinct clues that tell us, hey, when you think of Gideon, think of Passover. And then as Gideon is winning, and his 300 are winning, and he requests help, bread and water, from the, the men of Sukkot, and they refuse him. Well, Sukkot can't get any more clear than Sukkot. So what we're given in this prophecy is bookends. We're given Passover as one end of it, and we're given Sukkot as the other end of it. And we want to look at both of them as being connected apocalyptically. If we don't understand the feasts, and in other words, I think by the time we get to the end of this, we'll understand we have to do more than understand about the feast. We have to know the feasts for it to make any sense whatsoever. If we're not doing the feast, if we're not engaging the feast in spirit and truth, not just checking off the boxes, instead, is our heart engaged in these feasts? Is it attaching to the lessons about salvation, redemption, purification, sanctification, all these things? Are we attaching to those messages? Because if not, you know, we might end up exactly like those people that Yeshua turns away because he doesn't know them. Just checking off a box doesn't mean you know anything. We've all done that. We've studied for a test long enough to pass the test, to fill in the blanks, pick A, B, C, D, or circle true or false, 
and we were done with it. And if you had asked us the next, next day what was on the test, we might have recalled a few items, but really we didn't care about it. So we just memorized what we needed to do on that day, but we never internalized the information. We can engage the feast that way. And in that sense, we're still lawless because the Torah is all about his teaching and instruction for a covenant relationship. A relationship is a two-way thing. And so if we're not, you know, one of the two in that relationship, we really haven't known them. We've just checked our, off our boxes. So knowing, and um, if you studied workbook one of the creation gospel, you know, the sixth spirit of Adonai listed in Isaiah is the spirit of knowledge or da'at, right? That's going to be a noun form of yada, knowing, to know someone. It's an intimacy. It's growing into unity, like Adam knew his wife and they conceived a son. It's it's a sacrificial knowing. It's actually a, a very deep love. To know something, to have a relation with something or someone is to love it. And out of that love, you'll bear fruit, right? So it's no accident because it's the sixth spirit of Adonai. It's no accident that the sixth assembly in Revelation is Philadelphia, which means brotherly love. It's relationship. But knowing is a contronym, just like any other Hebrew word. There's going to be a positive side that you will experience when you obey the word, but there's also a negative side that you will experience when you don't obey the word. So we saw in Gideon's story when he says, I will know you with thorns and briars, that he knew them all right. It was punishment. He was teaching them the consequences of being apathetic, of standing back waiting for a sure thing. And that's a caution to us. We don't want to live our lives waiting to see if Yeshua comes back and wins before we obey his word. I think that might be where we're risking getting that depart from me. I never knew you. You never obeyed me. You never knew me. We never had a relationship. And so for those who are working miracles, casting out demons in his name, just remember Yeshua tells his disciples, these things could occur. If you're a disciplined disciple, he could use you to do miracles. He could use you to cast out demons. But he he doesn't say this is a commandment. He's just saying this can happen. Be prepared. But what is commanded is expected of everyone every day. It's not, it shouldn't be an uncommon occurrence. It shouldn't be that noteworthy when we keep the commandments because it's just our obligation as believers. It's a light yoke, but it's still a a yoke. The yoke of the commandments, he says, the burden is easy because he's yoked in there with us, but he still expects us to stick our necks out and get in the yoke. And how hard can it be if he's in the yoke with us? So yes, working miracles, casting out demons, fine, but it's not required. It's not commanded. There will be opportunities to do that, but it's not commanded. What is commanded is what is expected in order for you to grow into that relationship. Because if you're in that relationship with Yeshua, then you would never entertain the idea of working a miracle or casting out a devil in order to bring attention to yourself and to feel powerful. And in the end, you know, it's very dangerous to walk that walk of working miracles and casting out demons because we're only human beings. And uh, you can see in the temptation of Yeshua in the wilderness, Part of the temptation was for him to exalt himself. And at each opportunity, he says, no, it is written. He was very humble about it. Yes, I could turn the stones into bread, but I'm not going to do it just to work a miracle and draw attention to myself. So I can go tell people I turned stones into bread. He already knew he could do that. Big deal. But can he obey? Can he deflect all glory back to the Father? Is he worthy? of having the the nations bow before him and acknowledge him as the king? Yes, he is. But that's not why he came. He came to serve. He came to obey. And, And like we were reading last week in Hebrews, where it talks about how Yeshua learned obedience through suffering. He he knew obedience, but until he came in human flesh, he didn't understand it and the suffering of the flesh. And so once he suffered in the flesh, it says, This is a perfection. 
And, and this created the way for us to see that, you know what, we can also walk toward perfection if we're willing to sacrifice our flesh day after day after day in order to be obedient. That's part of our perfecting as the saints. So here's the passage I, I'm wanting us to continue working with. Matthew 7, 21. Yeshua says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Leave me, you who practice lawlessness or Torahlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now, remember that phrase, he built his house on the rock. Yeshua's mentioning that for a specific purpose. He's jogging your memory about a particular prophecy. In fact, that prophecy will pop up again in the book of Revelation. So he's saying, if you hear these words of his and act on him, on them, it would be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. So he's contrasting people who claim to have known him, who have invoked his name to do great things, but they weren't practicing obedience. They were actually practicing disobedience. Now, we all disobey. We all sin. We've all come short of the glory of Adonai. But do we keep practicing that or do we seek to change it? Do we seek to repent of it? Do we we seek the kingdom and say, Father, I need your spirit to intervene in my life. I don't want to do this anymore. I, I want it to grieve me as much as it does you. Rather than kind of standing back like the men of Sukkot, waiting for the end to find out who wins. Well, let me tell you right now who's going to win. Yeshua's going to win, no doubt. The Father's still going to be on the throne, either of mercy or judgment. He's going to win. So why should I wait until I'm judged in order to think about practicing obedience, about practicing repentance? Let me practice now, because apparently it is something you need to practice, right? (laughs) You got to get better. So he says, if you will practice obeying his word, then you're going to build your house on a rock. And it says the rain fell and the floods came, winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet they did not fall. It had been founded on the rock, right? Founded on the rock. Just file that one away, but don't file it too deep, right? Keep it up where you can grab that file quick. And if we think about the winds blowing and slamming against the house, again, think of the angels of the four winds who are being held until the righteous can be sealed in their foreheads. And once they are sealed, we'll know they're safe. This makes us think of the Feast of Trumpets between the the Feast of Trumpets and Yom HaKippurim, those 10 days. The standard greeting among Jews is, may your name be inscribed and sealed in the book of life. So when the righteous are sealed, while these angels of the four winds are being held back, the righteous are being sealed against that day, right? And Yeshua talks about, many will say to me, on that day. What day? The day of judgment. It begins with the Feast of Trumpets, and it concludes with the closing of the gates 10 days later at Yom Kippur. So it can mean a literal 24-hour day, or it can mean a span of time. At any rate, the winds blew. What does that tell you? The angels of the four winds were turned loose. Tribulation has come into the world. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and its collapse was great. When Yeshua had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So that's where we're going here. We want to get this wrapped up so we'll we'll understand the two different kinds of knowing that we might experience as human beings on a day of judgment, whether he will be familiar with us as intimates, as those who also have walked in obedience and suffered for it, or as those who kind of stood aloof. We had an identity, right? Just like with the men of Sukkot, they had an identity as Israelites. 
the people who go to Yeshua and say, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons. We did miracles in your name. They, they claim an identity. They, they claim some sort of citizenship. And he's saying, no, that's not enough just for you to say it and to do things that keep you safe, that make you feel good, that make you feel secure in who you are. No, that's not going to work. So let's look at this, this phrase here that I wanted you to remember about the rocks. We've got Hosea 10.8 that says, and this is a prophecy uh, against Ephraim, uh, which is another uh, way of, of naming the 10 northern tribes of Israel that went into exile under the Assyrian conquest. Now, he loves Ephraim. Make no mistake about that, but he also grows frustrated with Ephraim because he's so disobedient because Ephraim sets up these two golden calves in this territory. And so according to Hosea, this is what's going to happen to Ephraim. And then we're going to see what Hosea is prophesying about Ephraim. Eventually, at the end of days, if we you know extend the telescope, it's going to happen to the world. He says, also the high places of Avin. The sin of Israel will be destroyed. Thorns and thistles will grow on their altars. Then they will say to the mountains, cover us. And to the hills, fall on us. Now they're asking to be covered, right? It's That's critical to understanding that passage. Uh, the thorns and the thistles are a symbol that we learned in the Judges that represent punishment, divine punishment. Well, actually, it goes back to the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve fell out of the garden, what happens? Thorns and thistles, right? Punishment, because you've fallen from a high place. And he's eventually going to destroy our high places, our altars. Again, who was glorified in those altars? We were, not him. He says, I'll take care of that. Thorns and thistles are going to grow on that. It's going to be very difficult to do what you do. I'll punish you. And then they will say to the mountains, Mountains rep re represent nations. I don't know if you remember that. Mountains represent nations, like the seas represent the nations. So they're going to say to the mountains, that is, the nations cover us. We want to hide among the nations. Maybe he won't notice us. And to the hills, fall on us. Well, this is what Adam and Eve tried to do. They covered themselves with fig leaves, but they weren't covered. Uh, it's only through the work of the one who created us that we can acquire the proper coverings. In Luke, Yeshua repeats it, 2330. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. And then finally, in Revelation 616, we see how this preliminary judgment on Ephraim has now been extended worldwide. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, how do you build an altar? You build it with rocks. And Yeshua said, build your house on a rock, obey. So they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the sight of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. It goes back to what we said last week. If we believe that Adonai is the king on the throne, then we should be behaving like he's going to judge us from that throne. And so when we stand before the throne, he is going to cover us. Remember the tabernacle, the mishkan, the tent of meeting? Inside, there was a mercy seat of judgment. We want to be judged under the coverings before the mercy seat. Because see, if, if we're not covered under his tent, the implication is, yes, we're still being judged before a throne, but it's not the mercy seat. It's the judgment seat. It's strict justice, and with it will come the wrath of the Lamb. And so those who have found themselves outside of the tent, they begin to realize they have no covering. The tent is not covering them in this day of trouble. And instead, they look around and they realize everything that they had invested in has turned into thorns and thistles. It's now be going, it's going to become the source of their punishment. That's pretty sobering. So knowing, it's preparation for the kingdom. It's our knowing Yeshua and the fellowship of his suffering. But if we refuse that, if we build our house on the sand, then he can return just like Gideon returned to Sukkot, and he can discipline us with thorns and briars. And 
you know, why are we worried about this? Because we're worried about people who walk around doing things we think are really on our page, prophesying in his name, casting out demons in his name, healing, doing miracles in his name. But yet he says, I never knew you. That troubles us. So we want to get this nailed down. We want to get it nailed down also for the sake of our family and our friends and our coworkers and people who are dear to us. So we can show them the way to know him, that they can't live a life of building altars to their own self-esteem, building altars to their own success, and then expect him to recognize them. And we want to trace this all the way back to its origin. We want to go back to Abraham, okay? All the way back to Abraham. Abraham's going to help us understand this. And it's also going to help us understand why Yeshua refers to Sodom and Gomorrah. When he prophesies about this tribulation of the future, when we expect to hear his footsteps on the mountains, moving through the nations in judgment. So the, the citation on this is going to be Genesis 18, 17 through 20. And I wanted to read this out of the art scroll because I, I thought the wording was accurate. It says, and Hashem said, and remember, this is going to be at the time of Passover when this occurred, when the angels came to visit Abraham and to warn him what was about to happen in Sodom and Gomorrah, but also to assure Abraham and Sarah that at this appointed time next year, you're going to have a son. I'm going to fulfill this promise that I've made to you. So we've got two prophecies here. One, dealing with Abraham and Sarah, and then Sodom and Gomorrah. See the two different ways of knowing in this one scene. He's going to know Abraham and Sarah for good so that the, the promise will be inherited through Isaac, Abraham's offspring. But then on the other hand, he's about to go know Sodom and Gomorrah with punishment, fire and brimstone. Okay, So he says, uh, and, and by the way, again, like I said, keep this filed. This particular incident occurred at the time of Passover. We see Lot baking matzah for the angels. That links it to the story of Gideon, which also takes place at the time of Pesach. That the time of Pesach, even though we often hear, well, you know, the, the spring feasts have been fulfilled, but we're still waiting on the, the fall feast to be fulfilled. We got to quit thinking like that, folks. It's messing us up because we're trying to tick off boxes. We're, we're trying to attract people into the feast by scaring them into thinking the fall feast, they have yet to be fulfilled. So you got to get ready. That's not the way prophecy works. Prophecy runs in cycles. It happens over and over and over and over. So we're told in the book of Hebrews that Yeshua has gone into the Holy of Holies. He has had a Yom Kippur, but this cycle will not stop. The nature of it is cyclical. So prophecies can be fulfilled over and over and over. So let me get back to the scripture. Hashem said, shall I conceal from Abraham what I do? And Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. It's just the fulfillment of the promise to the nations, which helps us understand why we could go from a prophecy specifically against Ephraim, where they're going to ask the, the mountains and the hills to fall on them, that's going to take us all the way into Revelation, where the nations are going to say the same thing. And so the verse goes on, for I have cherished him, yedativ, I have cherished him, yedativ, cherished him. It's the same word translated as knowing, what? Yada, knowing, yodea, knowing. Okay, in this particular case, it's the same verb, but from it, uh, you get that nuance of intimate relationship, of friendship. I have cherished Abraham because he commands his children and his household after him that they keep the way of Hashem, doing charity and justice in order that Hashem might bring upon Abraham that which he had spoken of him. Right? In order that when the children of Abraham do charity and justice, when they, when they do the commandments, of Adonai. It's what keeps that promise active upon Abraham's children about his inheritance, that his children would inherit the land, not just the physical land, but that land hovering just above it, the Garden of Eden, that they would be restored to their original inheritance, not just, not just rocks and dirt, but that spiritual inheritance. 
So if we look at it in this context of knowing, Abraham has a relationship where not only does he cherish the Holy One, the Holy One also cherishes him. And he says, you know what? I'm going to let Abraham know what's going on here with Sodom and Gomorrah. Because Abraham is one who respects and teaches the commandments. He teaches my ways. So in this case, it's a term of endearment. It's a term of familiarity. If you go back and you read Ruth 2.1 and 3.2, uh, the idea of being an intimate of your husband or Boaz being an intimate friend, somebody that people knew well for his good deeds. Exodus 33.17, uh, where he says, I have become familiar with you by name. Well, this is what these people are saying to Yeshua. We did these things in your name. But he's saying, you didn't really know my name because you weren't about doing charity and justice. You weren't about passing this on to your children so that you could keep up your part of the bargain so that we could bring more of your descendants into the kingdom. Right? So... Those who were seeking admission, they're invoking Yeshua's name with their deeds, but Yeshua's saying, you really didn't do it in my name. You never cherished me because you never cherished the commandments, right? And if you'll do a word search on what's translated there as charity and justice, it'll really help. We don't have time to do that today, but it will help. <coughs> So the essential meaning of these contexts um, of knowing Yeshua, knowing Adonai, um, according to Rashi, it's one who cherishes a person. He draws close to him and knows him and becomes familiar with him. Right? <coughs> So by instilling the way of Adonai into his children, Abraham, he invested in passing on that cherished covenant relationship to Isaac. And Isaac, in turn, was going to pass it on to Jacob. And Jacob was going to pass it on to his children. They would not be left in the dark as to what it meant to know the Holy One, because the whole goal was to bring them into their inheritance to restore them back to the garden, to resurrect them from the dead. And so the goal of that promise is to bring the children of Abraham into the kingdom. He wants to resurrect them. He wants to resettle them in the garden of Eden. Right. So if you're claiming to know Yeshua, then part of that should be bringing people into the kingdom, bringing them to a, a salvation relationship with Yeshua so that they can be resurrected and resettled in the Garden of Eden, not to keep their own rules. See, if you live your whole life keeping your own rules and building your own altars, then you're not prepared to live in the Garden of Eden. He doesn't let people stay in there who aren't obedient. He says, no, I want to perfect you. And presumably, from what we know of, of his statements about grace, is as long as we are diligent in that relationship, if we cherish him so much that we obey him, that if there's any deficit when our days are over, that his grace is able to make us stand because we knew him. We didn't always prevail in every battle, but we continued battling for the sake of holiness, for the sake of the kingdom, right? So here's the contrast. If we go on to Genesis 18, 20, that's one type of knowing, the knowing that he has with Abraham. Here, Hashem said, because the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah has become great, and because their sin has been very grave, I will descend 
and C. Okay, I put descend there in italics because I want that to stand out in that statement. He knows they've sent. It's, it's not like he has to go check and see. He already knows, right? But as the judge, he wants to put eyeballs on it. He's going to get right down in the middle of it. I'll see. I'll see. Will there be any repentance if I show up? And of course, you know, we, we have lots of ideas about who that third angel might have been, uh, because at times in the text, it will make it seem as though it's Adonai himself. Is this a pre-incarnate appearance of Yeshua? Possibly. In that case, uh, the word itself has descended to put eyes on the situation and see if there is any sign of repentance from Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, if they acted in accordance with its outcry, which came to me, then destruction. And if not, here's our word again, I will know. And the ah, future tense. If not, I will know. All right, he already knows. And just, does he have the information? Yes. It's not the type of knowing we're talking about. If they have not repented, then he will know them with discipline. Just like Gidon, he knew the men of Sukkot and Penuel with discipline, with thorns and with briars. He goes down, and of course, the five cities, um, it wasn't just Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, there was Adma, Soar, and Zivuim. Those cities were also part of that little collective. He goes down. And there's no sign of repentance. If anything, it's the worst you could have expected. They're trying to violate angels. No hint of repentance. Uh, and no reason to be this wicked. Abraham had already rescued them, right? He'd rescued them and restored them. They had Lot within their gates. And I may not think that Lot's that righteous, but the New Testament does. It calls him the righteous Lot. Maybe it's relative. Relative to Sodom and Gomorrah, he was a righteous man. Relative to Abraham, maybe not so much. But they've got two witnesses to truth and righteousness and justice, and there's no repentance whatsoever. There's not even a shadow of turning. And so just as Gidon returned and disciplined or knew the men of Sukkot with briars and thorns of destruction, so Sodom and its satellite cities were about to be known with punishment um, because the idea here, as you're reading the, the rabbinic commentary to this particular verse, uh, he says, if I go and it's true what they're doing, but they repent, then they will have tribulation. If they don't repent, then he says, I will apply the judgment. He already knows the state of rebellion that they're in. If they remain in that state of rebellion, he will destroy them completely. If they repent, he reduces the sentence to tribulation. And remember, this is occurring at the time of Pesach. So as we're approaching Pesach here, fast, it's coming up on us very fast. We don't push off repentance and say, well, I'll wait until the fall to get around to that. We don't wait until the fall and say, well, Yeshua took all my sins and I'm free to keep piling them up ever after. That's not okay. We need to remain in a state of repentance because if not, he will know. He will punish us. If we repent, we still might experience some tribulation. I call that the residue. You know, even if you blew up a meteorite in outer space, there would still be fragments floating around. And sometimes we mess up our lives so badly. Even if we repent of the sin, there's still some fragments floating around out there that, you know, we're going to have to deal with them. They're in our lives. We can't say they didn't happen. They happen, but we repented of them. And so we might experience some hardship based on our choices. 
But judgment is for when they won't repent. And if you'll read the Revelation, read how many times it says, you know, after each successive judgment, it says they would not repent. They would not repent. They would not repent. He's giving them tribulation saying, hey, turn. But they would not repent. And so we know the end of that is that I'll destroy them completely. It won't be a matter of just knowing them with discipline and tribulation. It will be a matter of destroying them entirely. Right? You can see why there, there's a danger, there's a risk, and I don't, I don't claim to understand it. But there is a risk even to believers that if they do not repent, that they will experience great tribulation. I think we're all going to experience tribulation. Every generation does. He tests us through tribulation. It's always to bring us to repentance. It's always to bring us to a greater degree of perfection. But if we refuse that discipline, then it becomes much more severe. Right? And so in that case, I don't know that it's going to feel that much different than what's happening to the wicked. It's probably going to feel just exactly like what's going to happen to the wicked because he's bringing the lukewarm, those who have some claim to citizenship or identity. Oh, we did this in Yeshua's name. Right? Oh, we're men of Sukkot, but we're not acting like it. We're not acting like we're Israelites. And so that discipline might be experienced just exactly the same as a wicked person who doesn't intend to repent at all. We don't want to play around with that. We don't want to delay, postpone, waiting to see, you know, I'll just wait till Yeshua's on the throne. No, I don't think you will. I think something will happen long before that, that will either bring you into a state of repentance or into a state of utter panic where it would be better if a mountain or a rock fell on you because you realize this is a day of trouble and he hasn't covered me. This is not the mercy seat. Both of these incidents with Abraham and Sarah, good knowing you're going to have fruit. Sodom and Gomorrah, bad knowing you're going to be destroyed. Gideon, good knowing, I'll raise up a judge to save you. Bad knowing, I'm going to come back to you, men of Sukkot and Penuel, and I will know you with thorns. Each of these aligned with the Moed of Pesach. Right? So just to review some bullet points here, because we're, we're wanting to make sure that we know we're standing on a rock when it's time to enter the kingdom that we have not just heard his words, but that we've acted upon them, and therefore we know him. So yada, discipline. He loves us, so he disciplines us. And if we cooperate with the discipline, we come to know him, and he comes to know us. If we don't obey, he can still know us, but not in the good way, not in the cherishing way, right? Uh, but the Father does love those whom he disciplines. It's always to bring them closer to him. So we've got uh, Lot baking the matzah, so we know it's a time of Pesach. Adonai says he will descend. We associate this with Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord, right? These are people who are known. <laughs> they don't just have a claim to citizenship. They have known Yeshua and the fellowship of his suffering. They have been sealed before the angels of the four winds were loosed. So he says, I'm going to descend. He descends at the time of Pesach. So we can see a bookend at Pesach over here with the fall feasts. 
right? So he's going to descend. He the the understanding that we looked at last week is that um, he descends from the throne of judgment, and then he ascends the throne of mercy with a shout, with the teruah. Right, and so those who are sealed, those whom he knows, are caught up together with him in the cloud. And maybe next week we'll talk about Revelation 14, where we have the Son of Man sitting on a cloud with a sickle, and what's about to happen there. One type of knowing versus, as you read down in the chapter, another angel with a sharp sickle who's going to know people in a completely different way. They weren't harvested by Yeshua, so you can imagine what's going on with that second angel, right? So he's the voice of the shofar, feast of trumpets. And then the people are going to be lifted up into the cloud with Yeshua, right? So uh, he's going to judge his own, those who are sealed with mercy. If there is repentance, if not, then a punishment or destruction decree may be recorded at that time. Now, just remember, nothing happens at that time. There's going to be a waiting period. They have 10 days until the closing of the gates at Yom Kippur to repent. Please instruct (laughs) friends and family, people you care about, uh, that if at some point, especially at the Feast of Trumpets, they realize there's been something happened and they don't feel like they've been gathered into that cloud. They've got 10 days to get it right. There might be some punishment with thorns and briars, right? There might be some goading into repentance. But if at some point they realize, "Uh uh-oh, I missed out. I didn't know the sound of Teruah on the Feast of Trumpets. Then tell them, repent. Repent before the gates close at Yom Kippur. And still nothing's going to happen. But the decrees are handed off. They are executed at Sukkot. And remember, we keep Sukkot, Scripture tells us, in remembrance of when he brought us out of Egypt. We keep it in remembrance of Passover. And what did they do at Passover? They left Egypt and they entered their first camp. There is going to be Sukkot. And so ever after, as they wandered through the wilderness, It was said that they lived in clouds of glory or Sukkot of glory. So there's an elevated state of existence that we enter into at Passover. You say, well, how does that look? I'm like, I don't know. I've never been there. (laughs) I'm just reading about it like you. (laughs) I'm just pointing out to you that it's you've been reading it. Since you've been reading the Bible, you have been reading about what happens. At some appointed time, Yeshua will gather us. We don't wait until the fall feasts. The idea is that for the righteous, you already started walking in a preliminary way at Passover. And you entered into Sukkot of glory. You entered into clouds of glory, and maybe you didn't even perceive it. If we look at the behavior of the Israelites in the wilderness, it didn't dawn on a lot of them, the the glorious existence they were already walking in. And so many times we walk in the feast, and we just don't discern the glorious existence we're already walking in. We don't realize where we are already. At any rate, we look over to the fall, and then we can see the completion of this process. We start at Passover. It takes us to Shavuot, which is a greater understanding of the commandments for our perfection. And that's where we say we will do and we will hear. And then we keep walking, and we make it into the fall feasts. If at that point we have been diligent We have walked in repentance. If we've stumbled, if we've made mistakes, we got up and we kept fighting. We were all in. We didn't get tired. We didn't stand back and say, well, let me just wait till Yeshua gets here and then life will be way easier. I won't have to fight, you know, this 
these evil impulses so hard. I'll just wait till he gets here. And in the meantime, I'll have a good time. Doesn't work. Doesn't work that way. That's a very painful way to go, folks. Because at least if you were completely wicked, there would be no regret. If you had one foot in the kingdom, if you had one foot in with Yeshua and the other foot in the world, it's going to be a very painful place to be because you will realize you had all the tools, you knew everything you should have done, and you chose to build your own altars. So nothing happens again at the conclusion of Yom Kippur. It's like, well, nothing's going to happen here. Really, there's no throne. There's no judgment. It's all grace and peace and love and cinnamon rolls, right? But then Sukkot arrives, and those crickets chirping will stop chirping because this is when the decrees are handed off to the angels for execution. If you did not repent, it's handed off. So while the righteous are under the tent at Sukkot, they are in Sukkot of glory. They're enjoying the rewards, some to greater degrees, some to lesser. Some just glad they're saved, maybe, you know, who knows? But they were people who were known. And he's going to know the children of Abraham. Just like he promised Abraham way back in. He says, I know Abraham, what he's going to do for his children. And so these are Abraham's children whom he also knows because their behavior in their life was as though Abraham were still living. It's like dad was walking with them, right? We all have Father Abraham if we're a believer. Often we say, well, what would Yeshua do? And, and sometimes we need to say, what would Father Abraham do in this situation? <laughs> uh, we've got all sorts of examples, basis. I want to know you as a child of Abraham. I want to know if you're gonna if you're gonna keep the way of righteousness so that you can inherit your portion in the garden so that, that you can be within the tent where the, the throne is one of mercy, where Yeshua can carry you on his chest and, and carry you on his shoulders, and he can make you stand in a place you couldn't have stood on your own. Think about the grace in that. And you will have no reason to be ashamed or to say mountains and rocks fall on us because you will have built your house on a rock. So next week, uh, we're going to get back into this particular verse in the Song of Songs because there's some clues in here about what Yeshua is teaching about the last days. As he's teaching about his footsteps, when his footsteps are heard on the mountains, uh, we'll know what to expect. Right? He may not give us the details, but he's certainly going to give us guideposts so that uh, we know we're on the right path. And that, that passage that we're looking at is Song of Songs 217. It says, until the cool of the day, when the shadows flee, turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of Beter. Right? So the the cool of the day, uh, as we get into it, and it might take a few weeks to get where we want to go with this, but as we get into it, as it talks about the cool of the day, we can begin to understand why Yeshua taught about his return in the watches of the night. So this verse is telling us there will be a transition as we're looking for the footsteps of Messiah, which will be on the mountains. Uh, in this case, like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains. In other words, it will come quickly. Yeshua talks about how the days will be shortened. Unless those days were shortened, no one would be saved. He shortened those days for the sake of the elect. Does it say he shortens them for the sake of the wicked? Their experience might be completely different. 
revelations, even so, come quickly, Lord Yeshua. Well, what is quickly? It's like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains upon the nations. So when we hear how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, announcing peace, well, those are the footsteps of Messiah. But also on these mountains, if we hear him, if we hear that good news, then they could happen upon us like a gazelle or a young stag. They could run to us quickly. It could be that a, a certain time period is shortened as much by half. That a, that a period of tribulation, it might turn much more rapidly than we expected, which some people don't think they're going to go through tribulation at all. So I'm not talking to them. But for those of you who are looking into the scriptures and saying, well, I can't really see in the scriptures, we're just going to get zapped out of here before the tribulation. Uh, there's too many conflicting scriptures. Just keep that humility. As you approach, just keep that humility of saying, I don't have it all pinned down. I don't have it all nailed down. But I do know the way of Messiah. He has left me his commandments so that I can know him. Yes, I know it's not going to be convenient all the time. Yes, I know I will suffer. Yes, I know I will have doubts. I know it's not going to be, <laughs> like I said, peace, love, and cinnamon rolls. But on the other hand, that's how we'll come to know him and he'll come to know us. And so many times I think of what he said on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So when you're attacked for the sake of the commandments, pray for those people. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But may they come to know you. May my suffering be an example to them. May my grace and suffering be an example to them. Because if I am graceful under attack for my faith, then that's something that can be a light shining in a dark place. That's something. Gideon's army going in at nighttime, that's going to be a lesson for us. Because what do they have? They don't have swords in hand. They have shofars. They have the word. And in earthen vessels, they have the lights, right? They have the spirit in those earthen vessels, and they have the voice of Elohim through the voice of the shofar, the word of Adonai. So what went before them? The spirit and the word, the power of Adonai. And we need to be Gideon's army in that respect. We need to have his word in one hand and the spirit in the other in terms of how do we do battle? Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.